0: American Social History Podcasts are a production of the American Social History Project Center for Media and Learning at the City University of New York. This presentation took place at the CUNY Graduate Center as part of our Bridging Historias through Latino History and Culture Program, a national endowment for the Humanities Bridging Cultures at Community Colleges Project. Good morning, everybody. So we thought what we'd do this morning, I'm going to introduce our panelists. Um, and then they're each gonna talk uh, for a few minutes and Andrea will cut them off if she thinks they've gone on for uh, too long. And we'll have sort of a panel discussion. Okay, and I'll introduce our, our panelists. Lisandro can talk about himself and then I'll talk about myself.
1: Uh, very briefly, my, my name is Lisandro Perez. I chair uh, Latin American and Latino Studies at John Jay College. So uh, we teach Latino Studies uh, all our courses are Latino studies. Uh, so we, we are trying as much as possible to integrate Latino studies into uh, the John Jay College curriculum. John Jay is the senior college in CUNY with the largest uh, percentage of Latino students. And um, I uh, have recently really arrived in many ways, this is only my fourth year, I came from, yes from Miami, I moved from Miami to New York. I was at FIU, Florida National University for many years. And I'm enjoying the challenges here. My work is on 19th century. Actually, I I work primarily on Cubans. I've worked on Cubans contemporarily, and then that was sort of a bit controversial. So, um, <laughs> and so i uh, now I'm studying dead Cubans. They don't they don't they, <laughs> they don't they don't talk back to me. And so I'm working on the 19th century Cuban community in New York, and not just Jose Marti, but other people too.
2: <laughs>
0: Hi, I'm Maria Montoya, and I'm an associate professor of history at the NYU department. Um, I've only been here, I guess I've been here eight years now, and before that I was at the University of Michigan where I was also the director of Latino studies. Um, My work's kind of transformed a little bit. I'm just finishing up a U.S. history textbook. It's called Global Americans, and one of the things we've really been trying to do is really to integrate the experience of all different kinds of Americans into a cohesive whole narrative about U.S. history, and that's turned out to be a really huge intellectual uh, project. So that's sort of where I come into uh, this project here, is about thinking how this fits into the sort of larger um, U.S. history and context. I'm also finishing up a book on healthcare in the United States uh, through the 1920s and the 1930s, and sort of first attempts to uh, bring that to a larger working class uh, public. So I'm really excited to be here and to be part of this uh, project, so. Well, let's get started with our three uh panelists today. Um, We'll start with Pablo Mitchell, who I've actually known for a long time. Pablo is one of my first, I think he was my first PhD student, so I feel old and proud at the same time, so it's very exciting. He is a professor of history, um, so you can try to figure out how old I am. He is a professor of History and Comparative American Studies at Oberlin College. He's the author of a most recent book called West of Sex, Making Mexican America, 1900 to 1930. Um, And his first book was called Coyote Nation, and it was the winner of the uh, Billington Prize from the Organization Organization of American um, Historians. Um, You read a piece of his earlier uh, for the online uh, discussion, and I think that's part of his book project on history of Latinos um, in the United States. Um, He teaches Latino history, uh, Mexican-American history, um, and is just an all-around terrific uh, person. So um, we'll let Pablo start, and then I'll just introduce us as we go along.
3: Well, thank you. Uh, I'm honored uh, to be here. Um, I'm grateful to be here today to talk with you all about Latino and Latina history uh, and to take part in this really exciting workshop uh, and larger project. I want to thank the organizers of this event, uh, in particular uh, Maria Matoya, who really saved me at Michigan. I got there and some of my advisors had left and I just, like, well, we just the convergence was just wonderful so I was really lucky to have her there. Um, as well as all the other organizers of this event uh, put all this uh, work into this. This is especially exciting because I'm in the middle of teaching. Um, the, my Latino-Latina history course this semester. I'm also writing kind of a mini textbook on Latino history. It's not really a full textbook, because it doesn't have the big sidebars, but it's kind of a textbook, so I don't really actually know what to call it. So if anyone has, it's almost like a novella history, it's like <laughs> Historella, something like that. Um, I hope to have that finished in the next six months or so. So a lot of uh, what we'll be talking about today is really kind of at the front of my mind. Like anybody, teaching any course, I have many goals when I teach my Latino Latina history course. Obviously, I want students to know more about the histories of particular groups in the US, Mexicans, Puerto Ricans, Cubans, Dominicans, Central Americans, and so on. And I want them to work with primary sources. So we spend a lot of time, uh, and I tell them that's what gets me as a historian all kind of tingly and things like that, talking about census documents and so on. So we spend a lot of time with census documents and newspapers and legal records and poems. Uh, in political platforms like the Young Lord's Party 13-point statement, which I just love to use. Uh, And I'd also like them to have a sense of Latina history, the history of Latinas as workers, as political activists, as union organizers, as community builders, and community defenders. I want them to know about big events in Latino and Latina history, Trudio Guadalupe Hidalgo, (coughs) Spanish-American War, Jones Act, repatriation, and so on. In the course, I also want to make a case for a central place of Latino and Latina history in broader United States history. So, we start with the Spanish in the Caribbean in the late 1400s and talk about Cabeza de Vaca, a drawing um, from uh, my colleague Andres Veslendez's wonderful work on Cabeza de Vaca's amazing journey. And we discuss the Spanish in New Mexico, in California, and Texas in the 17th and 18th centuries. One of the points I try to stress in the class is the presence of the Spanish in North America at roughly the same time, if not in some cases before, English and French colonization in places like Quebec and New England and Virginia. This attempt to link themes and topics in Latino and Latina history with broader US history continues throughout the course. So I'll discuss African slavery in the Caribbean and the United States uh, and native slavery uh, and enslavement as well. We'll discuss independence movements in the late 1700s and early 1800s throughout the Western Hemisphere, discuss abolitionist movements among exiled Puerto Rican and Cuban independence leaders living in Northeastern US cities, uh, New York, Philadelphia, as well as living in places like New Orleans. And I think New Orleans is really a critical place that I think we as historians, Latino and Latina history, really need to examine more, especially in the 19th century. I'll discuss uh, in the class the role of U.S. companies uh, and government, the U.S. government in Mexico in the late 19th century where the consolidation of land, the focus on export agriculture led to widespread poverty in Mexico, led to immigration to the U.S., and led to violence and revolution in the early 20th century, the Mexican Revolution. I'll discuss how U.S. nativist movements and immigration restriction, this kind of classic story that we know is building in the late 1800s into the early part of the 20th century, how that eventually cut off European and Asian immigration to the United States in the 19s and 20s, thus paving the way for immigration from Puerto Rico after the Jones Act. Of course, Puerto Ricans are U.S. citizens, as well as immigration from Mexico. Where Mexicans and all other immigrants from the Western Hemisphere were not included in this new quota system that severely limited immigration from elsewhere in the world. So bringing together larger themes of immigration history, immigration restriction, with then the specific movement of Puerto Ricans and Mexicans into the United States in the 19 teens and 19. 19- or at least into the mainland United States. I'll talk about other big topics in U.S. history, history, Great Depression, World War II, upheavals of the 1960s, economic problems of the 1970s, especially in areas of of manufacturing and their effect then on Puerto Ricans in places like New York uh, and on Mexicans in places like Los Angeles in the 60s and 70s. Since a lot of my students have taken (coughs) courses in African American and Asian American history, I also want to make links for them with those histories. So in addition to stressing the critical role, for instance, of Afro-Cubans in the independence movement in Cuba uh, in the 1890s and for decades before really, I'll also mention the presence of afro puerto Ricans using then census documents from the 1880s and 1890s in places uh, places like Philadelphia. I'll talk about the role of immigration restriction again in 19-teens and 1920s as opening spaces not only for Puerto Ricans in the Northeast, not only for Mexicans in the Northeast, but for African-Americans in the Northeast and in the Midwest. And uh, uh, talk about then bigger movements like the Great Migration and the Harlem Renaissance and try to bring together then links of immigration restriction as opening some of these spaces. And as a result, having African-Americans and Puerto Ricans, Cuban-Americans living in some (laughs) cases side by side in places like New York. In their papers, the students write for my class, I ask students to think about using primary sources that they might not necessarily think of, like African American newspapers, so newspapers like the Chicago Defender, um, the great African American newspaper in Chicago, to look for articles about Puerto Ricans, right? So how do then African Americans discuss Puerto Ricans uh, in their own newspapers? In terms of Asian American uh, history, i also talk about labor activism, labor activism evolving then Mexicans uh, and Japanese workers in the early 20th century, uh, Mexicans as well as Filipino workers uh, in the 1960s. So one of the real goals of my Latino Latina history class is to engage with broader U.S. history and the histories of other racialized groups in the U.S. I also want to bring up today, and hopefully we can talk more about this this question of Latino and Latina history as an overarching framework, and how to honor and describe these separate and very important histories of specific groups, while at the same time recognize some shared experiences and histories in North America and the United States. And I think that's really at the core of one of the, um, one of the great, I think, productive tensions in Latino history and teaching. It's clear to me that there's, there are some deep links that exist between these two different, these different groups. All were subject to Spanish colonialism, We all see the strong presence of Catholic religion in the history of many of these groups. There is, in places, a shared food, a shared culture. There's often uh, a shared and not incorrect sense of attack from a broader mainstream U.S. culture, Latinos as homogeneous, undifferentiated, un-American, and a whole host of stereotypes I think we're all too familiar with. More concretely, members of different Latino groups have, at least since the early 1800s, worked and lived with each other, and built businesses and organizations with each other. We can look at Puerto Ricans and Cubans forming merchant communities in the East Coast and the United States, political exile communities, including Jose Martí. There are lots of other examples of these, and I think we can uh, maybe talk some more about these. I'd like to talk more about specific ones. Jennifer Lopez playing Selena, right? Uh, the great Mexican singer, Latino baseball players sharing dugouts uh, from different communities, Puerto Rican and Cuban musicians sharing uh, musical spaces in 1920s Harlem, the Fania All Stars, right, with people like Cuban Celia Cruz, Puerto Rican Hector Lavoe, eventually Panamanian uh, Ruben Blades, uh, Carlos Santana's early band in the <laughs> Bay Area, uh, Young Lords Party 13 Floor Platform. So these are just some examples, and I really hope we can come up. That. I'd be really, I'd love to hear some of these. So, in conclusion, a couple of thoughts um, that I wanted to lay out to you then in terms of Latino history. First, what are some specific practical ways we can integrate Latino and Latina history into broader U.S. history, African American history, Asian American history, even women's history, uh, Native American history? And second, can we flesh out with specific examples the places where members of different groups meet and interact and work and play and perhaps start to formulate a broader notion Even if it's unnamed or named something else, I will share Latino that, thank you.
0: Great, thank you, Pablo. Um, Our next speaker will be Andres uh, Resendez, who is a professor of history at uh, the University of California um, at Davis. Um, And I think Andres' work um, really exemplifies sort of one of the best things about doing borderlands history, not just Latino history, but this really sort of internationalization of the border and people working on both sides of the border. And he's one of, I think, one of the greatest scholars who really knows how to use Mexican archives and U.S. archives and has really brought them together in his his work. Um, His first book was called changing national identities um, at the frontier, uh, which really looked at sort of merchants who were um, on the borderlands and in Um, sort of uh, around uh, the Gulf of uh, Mexico Um, and his most recent book which you've had the pleasure of reading which I think is one of the great uh, historical reads right now is The Land So Strange and the Wonderful Story of Cabeza de Vaca and he's currently writing a book on Indian slavery in northern uh, Mexico, a really important topic. So I'm really pleased to have Andres with us today. You're all very, very lucky.
4: Thank you all for coming. Uh, it is my pleasure to be here. Um, thank you, Maria, for this gracious introduction. Uh, thank you, um, everyone, uh, for, um, for inviting me and giving me the opportunity to, uh, to talk to you. Unlike Pablo, who had a very worked out uh, presentation, <laughs> I, uh, I had just five minutes of uh, random thoughts to get us started on, uh, on uh, discussing um, Latino history. Uh, let me just, uh, so I actually, the random thoughts will be boiled down to one, which is I have always uh, become, ve- been very interested in the connections between Latino communities and uh, the broader Latin American, uh, so the other side. So if Pablo talked about the integration of the Latino into the United States, I also want to talk about that other dimension of the the uh, ties between the Latino community and, uh, and, and the hemispheric ties. Um, Uh, This came about in part because of my biography. When I was uh, 17 years, I grew up in Mexico City. Um, When I was 17 uh, years old, I went to a boarding school in New Mexico, and I found these Mexicans de afuera, these other people who had been outside of Mexico who had a very, very different uh, uh, cultural traits, speech, and everything, and I became fascinated by these other Mexicans um, outside of Mexico. Um, and so the, uh, you could say that my entire wor- work uh, really dabbles or that really uh, addresses this, um, this issue. Now, for example, when I, t- I teach at the University of California, Davis, uh, I offer courses where I am confronted with the very same question. Um, our uh, student body is roughly uh, three-thirds, so one-third white, one-third Asian, and one-third Latino, Um, And so I have many of these students, Latino students, many of them first generation um, Mexicans whose parents uh, went to California to work in the fields in California and they are the first uh, people to attend college and I always, when I teach, I often teach uh, courses in early uh, colonial Latin America or Mexican history. I always uh, wonder, so exactly what is it the story that I want to tell? Why is it, what is it that I want to tell them about Mexico or early Latin America that would be relevant to their, to their existence? Um, they are extremely interested in this uh, history and I just want to make it work for them. And so that's sort of the, uh, the general uh, gist that, that I come with. And just to get us started, um, um, I uh, wanted to start with a very mundane, but maybe there is some substance here, uh, about the origins of the ter- ter- term Latino, which of course comes from, uh, from Latin America. And uh, this is a very laden term uh, that had an- its own imperial history, and I just wanted to spend two minutes talking about that. So the term, uh, America Latina or L'America Latin uh, emerged in France, curiously enough, in the 1850s. Uh, I mean, some. Um, I have a couple of examples. Some a Chilean politician named Francisco Bilbao used the term for the first time in Paris in 1856. Maybe there were, there may have been earlier usages. Around the same time, a Colombian writer, Jose Maria Torres Caicedo, wrote his poem "Las Dos Americas," um, also drawing the uh, the idea that there was a An Anglo-America and a Latin America. Uh, Naturally, the French intervention in Mexico in the 1860s gave greater currency to this term, uh, because here you have Napoleon III. Uh, So before, in the early 19th century, these uh, places, Mexico and the other, uh, you know, Latin American republics, were known as the former Spanish colonies, and Brazil was still an empire at that time. Um, But Napoleon III, uh, seeking for commonalities, uh, decided to say, well, this is a Latin America uh, grouped together by these Southern European Mediterranean uh, culture lumping together Portuguese and French and uh, Spanish America. And that's when the term, um, when the term came about. So, perhaps if we think about those imperial roots, we may also help us understand uh, why that term exists uh, and why this polarity between an Anglo American and a Latin America. So, that's all I had to say. Thank you.
0: So our final speaker uh, this morning is uh, Virginia uh, Sanchez-Curral, um is the professor emeriti uh, from Brooklyn College, uh, City University of New York. Um, she's done some really important work I always like. I'm from New Mexico. New Mexicans think they emerged from the earth and are the only sort of Mexicans <laughs> that ever existed. And um, I read Virginia's book and I thought, oh my gosh, there's this whole other world of Puerto Ricans and Cubans and New York City. It was like this really um, amazing um, opening um, up for me. And I think she was really one of the first scholars to do that really heavy lifting of telling this narrative of this group of people whose story had really sort of been untold up until that time. So it's a a wonderful, uh, wonderful addition. Um, since then, she's been really influential working uh, with our colleague Vicki Ruiz, um, putting together um, a, a wonderful encyclopedia um, and a website uh, with Latinas um, in the United States, the historical encyclopedia, um, as well as the website that goes along uh, with, uh, with that. She's also authored Feminist and Abolitionist, the Story of Amelia Casanova, um, and she also received uh, her degree from Stony Brook um, in New York, so a native New Yorker, and we're very pleased to have her with us today.
2: I have a rambling thoughts this morning <laughs> as well so um, I, I hope that doesn't set the tone for the rest of the day but when uh, Vicki and I were working on the encyclopedia I'm going to start with that story because there are a lot of implications to the work that we do that are that we want to flesh out during the day. Uh, the first meeting that we had with uh, yeah, the encyclopedia is the Latinas in the United States. It's a three volume encyclopedia. On the history of Latinas uh, in the United in American history, and uh, so we had a meeting with our board. Uh, we met, at, you know, at the grad center uh, over at Hunter. We had this wonderful group of historians you know, from all over, and we talked about what the what what would uh, uh, an encyclopedia look like on women on Latinas that had for so long been left out of the story. And we got, got to talking about the cover for some reason. Uh, you know, you're already envisioning the thing is finished. It took us 10 years. (laughs) But here we were, first meeting, but, you know, we're already talking about the cover. And so we went around the room, and everyone said, had something to say about what the cover should look like. And so somebody said, well, of course it has to be, you know, uh, uh, an indigenous-looking person, because, you know, that's what uh, Latinos look like, and that's what we are. Somebody else said, well, no, because it's... We have a European, you know, aspect to, uh, to to who we are, and and so that should be that should be the picture. No, 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 no. It has to be mestiza or it has to be mulata. I mean, that's that's where we come from. So we're getting the points of view of, of Latin America, of of Europe, of the Caribbean, and but they they were adamant about how what who should be on. At that point, we thought it would be only one book. Who should be on the cover? <laughs> so um, so I, I, Vicki and I looked at each other and we said, uh, well, you know, the, the editors will take the prerogative of choosing the cover. And so we did. We chose three different images for the three covers. The uh, uh, initial one, uh, two mestizas, you know, uh, holding hands. It's a beautiful image, uh, 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 late 19th century. and. Um, uh, at one point on another project that we worked on when we were uh, up in uh, in Taos one time one of the historians came over to us and she said you know, I always wanted to thank you for, for the cover that you use on your book. I said, why? She says, well it's great to see two lesbians, you know? <laughs> so you see that what we're going to be dealing with is a mixed bag and what I brought for you today uh, I've, spent, I've spent, you know, my entire career trying to figure out how it is that we integrate what we research, and what we what we love, what we write about into the curriculum of, of, of the United States. You know, uh, I, I'm a product of the New York City school systems. I never saw myself in that curriculum. Uh, and so I was determined at some point that my kids and my, my children's kids and, and my students would see that. So um, we, uh, it's it's been my 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 life's ambition. How do you integrate? How do you integrate? How do you do it? How every 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 chance I had, I I would I would do this, but very very often it would be an aha moment that was quickly forgotten once they were out the door. Uh, I was very very pleased as to that PBS finally you know took the bull by the horns and went ahead and put a lot of money into into the uh, six part series because at least it got such national coverage uh, that, uh, that people began to become interested. And so, looking for those intersections of class, race, uh, gender, looking for those intersections within the Latino community because one of the arguments, and I heard it, I heard it from you too in your biographies, how do I justify? how do I justify suddenly bringing in a history of Latinos to my class? And I'm out here in the boonies. It has nothing to do with with the people that I'm working with. Vicky and I had to remind ourselves for 10 years, Latino history is American history. Latino history is American history. Every time we we would meet with rejection in some way, Latino history is American history. And so I brought you the case of Isabel Gonzalez. I wanna tell you something about Isabel Gonzales, was a Puerto Rican woman, uh, In uh, she was 20 years old, she had a young child, she had been widowed, and she uh, was pregnant, and in 1902, she came to the United States. Now you know, of course, that by 1902, the United States has already invaded and put in a new system of government in Puerto Rico, so that the people of Puerto Rico now swear allegiance to the government of the united states and no longer to spain while isabel gonzalez is en route to new york and she's coming to linoleumville new jersey (laughs) uh, because her fiance is in linoleumville new jersey and so are her aunt and uncle and cousins and she has a family group there that's going to take care of her but while she's en route to the United States on the SS Philadelphia, it's like a seven day trip, the laws change and the, the commissioner of uh, Ellis Island is, is told that from this point on, Puerto Ricans were aliens and they were that was going to be their status. And so when she arrives in the United States, um, ready to meet her family, she goes to Ellis Island and they decide during one of the, uh, she meets all of the requirements. She has $11 in her pocket. You had to have 10. Uh, And she has family that will support her. And she does have the family. But while she's in Ellis Island, it is discovered that she's pregnant. And as a single woman (coughs) who is pregnant, who speaks another language, who is of mixed heritage, who is an alien in the United States, this woman is definitely suspect and she would become, according to the commissioner and the new laws of immigration in Ellis Island, she would become a charge to the state and therefore she was not allowed to disembark, she she was not allowed to to meet her family. She uh, She was going to be sent back to Puerto Rico. The family comes, they say that they're going to take care of her, they have good jobs in Linoleumville, they have great jobs, they're going to take care of her, she's not going to be a charge to, to the state. And, uh, and she meets, and, and her fiance is waiting for her to marry her, therefore she will not be an unwed mother with a child. They appeal and she loses the case. But the important thing that happens in the United States during this time is that now that the United States is becoming an empire, the newly conquered people, particularly the people of the islands, are given a new designation under the law. They become non-incorporated states, which meant that there was no promise of preparing the newly conquered people for statehood and citizenship in any way. That was not the way it was with the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo that was not the way it was when, when, when the Northwest Ordinance is, is put into place. But here it is. The people of Puerto Rico, newly conquered people, have no status, and Isabel has no status. Well, she loses the first case, but because this becomes such an issue in American history, a number of people are ready to take it up. And the case comes before the Supreme Court. By the time the case comes to the Supreme Court, because you have to determine whether Puerto Ricans are citizens, or aliens, or, uh, or nationals, or U.S. nationals, uh, because because they are no longer Spanish, and there are people without a status. Uh, by the time the case comes to the Supreme Court. Isabel Gonzalez is married. Uh, she's married the father of her, you know, unborn child who's now born. It's two years later, nineteen oh four. The case becomes the third insular case. There are 35 insular cases because, because of the ramifications of empire and and conquest. Um, the, the, the United States has no idea how it's going to deal with. Things like tariff and things like nationhood. Uh, in the Supreme Court, uh, Isabel Gonzalez decides that she's no longer going to plead. Now she, had, she's, she is her own agent. She she understands exactly what's happening to her. Her family happened to be some of the radicals of the 19th century Cuban revolutionary movement, so that they understand very very well what the United States is all about. Isabel decides she's not going to appeal on the basis of that she's a good woman, a moral woman uh, who is, who's married and raising a family. She decides that she's going to appeal on the basis of the fact that as people who have now been shorn of their nationhood and ext- told to swear allegiance to a new nation, that they should have the status of citizenship. The ruling that the Supreme Court hands down is that Isabel is not an alien, and the newspaper headlines for the Times, Puerto Ricans are not aliens, (laughs) but neither is she a citizen. The citizenship that is imposed on Puerto Rico is a second-class citizenship because it is an unincorporated territory until we get into the mid 20th century. So all I was thinking of while I was reading Isabel's case was documentation. You got documentation here. You got Supreme Court records. You've got the the, the lawyers' briefs. You've got the uh, all of the uh, all the interviews that were made. And Elizabeth uh, Isabel got called her Elizabeth, right? Isabel herself. Uh, Writes a number of letters to the New York Times. I was thinking humanities, social studies, uh, American (coughs) government, uh, citizenship, uh, (laughs) Latino history is American history.
0: So I think we'll just sort of open it up for a panel discussion among um, all of us. And um, I don't know if either, any of you want to respond to each other before we sort of (coughs) move on to my list of questions.
1: Actually, I, had, I actually okay. had to, just one thing I wanted to say, because <clears throat> I was really fascinated by what Andres said about the history of the term Latin America, right? Which we think is much older. So essentially, the term that originates, presumably Latino, is actually not such an old term at all. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I, I was not aware of, of that such a recent date, because 1856 to me is a recent date, which may be why Martí wrote Nuestra America, for example. Uh, I, mean, I have a CD of all of Martí's works. And I'm now going to search for America Latina to see if he actually used the term exactly. as opposed to, as he used to use it, Nuestra America. But the other thing that I want to say is that not only is, is Latino, as, a, as we use it, in a recent term, and that's something we have to deal with when we talk about Latino history, because essentially what we're doing is we're going back and imposing a term that's new on right. a former reality. So I, I first right. realized that when I was writing the introduction to my book, which I wrote first instead of last. Mm-hmm. Usually, sometimes you write the introduction last, right? But I actually so, mm-hmm. so I could figure out what I was doing, and I was talking about this community in New York in the 19th century of Cubans. This, and I was about to write Latino, and I, I couldn't, right? And largely because I don't yes. think I don't think Marti, if we had him here, and he said, you know, was this a Latino community? He would have sort of moved his head like a <clears throat> like a dog hears a noise you know like <laughs> sort of like that you know so th- we are talking about latino history but it's a it's a term that again was not used right back when those who were living that history were were alive mm-hmm. and that goes to def- defining a bit uh, the community but anyway that's that's just what clicked in my mind when you said that, mm-hmm. I, share
0: that. But, I mean i think that's sort of the classic question the first day of class you know you walk in Um, When I first started teaching, I taught Mexican American history, and I think that was a very regional thing. I was teaching at Colorado at the time. Um, And now I think when you walk in and you teach your first Latino history class, you really sort of have to define what it is. I think that's the first question out of their mind. So how do you deal with that, and how do you sort of answer Lisandro's question about imposing a term that I think is very modern back onto earlier historical periods?
2: Well, you know, there's another, uh, before you... you go into it there's another issue that's come up with the term Latino uh, at a national level working with the um, National Park Service uh, which is also making a a big big attempt to bring about awareness of our Latino history and past Mm -hmm. they decided that they would use the term American Latinos whereas everyone else is using the term (laughs) Latino Americans (laughs) because it's, it has to be grounded in American history. And so many of the national sites are Spanish colonial history that, uh, that to impose the, the, the Latino perspective has become very difficult. But one of the things that they have done is yeah. that they really are concentrating on the 20th century because that's where you begin to see the emergence of what we can reasonably call a Latino population, and the uh, the first uh, one of the first sites that was uh, there are several on the books. One of the first sites was the Cesar Chavez La Paz Monument uh, in in California in Keene, which uh, President Obama opened last year as part of the American Latino History Initiatives. So the, the we're not just grappling with this on on. In our classrooms, this is really hitting all different levels and what we, whatever we come up with is going to be very, very important because no one has really pinned it down. Yeah, but you're right about Martí, he would have looked askance. And even the Puerto Ricans in the 1920s living in New York, they would say, nosotros somos Hispanos, we're Hispanos. They used Latino in terms of the language, not, not in terms of identification.
0: So the question was, um, what was the first Latino history?
5: Yeah.
0: Any I mean, kind of a like
3: history a, book, or book that kind of talked about well, what, what like we, we see as Latino? history, you say
5: like, class, right? You start, uh, to start with that moment. Right, is right.
3: That moment like that? Hmm. Um, I think the histories have been so separated in, in so many ways. Um, and I think the histories also come out of different disciplines. I mean, I think Chicano and Chicana history, the history of, of ethnic Mexicans, comes out of kind of an ethnic studies, um, and more engages, I think maybe you can tell me, and other folks, that engages more U.S. history. And we'll start in kind of labor history and say, okay, where are Mexicans in the history of labor, and so on. Whereas, and you can see it in conferences, right? So I go to conferences on the U.S. West, right? And I go to American studies and so on. I think, and others can tell me differently, okay. Puerto Rican history, Cuban-American history, and so on, is really more engaged with Latin American. So they'll go to LASA, they'll go to Latin American Studies Association, right? And so there is kind of a, a Latin American history. And I, so I think that there are some disciplinary boundaries that folks are still trying to kind of come together and and work through. Um, And then I think people have been writing some different histories, so I think we're in the midst of kind of putting that project together right now, and so I don't think there's that canonical text, because I wouldn't say that, say, Occupied America by Rudy Acuna is, you know, central to Chicano and Chicana history, but, you know, it doesn't talk about Puerto Ricans, (laughs) it doesn't talk about Cubans, um, and it doesn't necessarily have to, but so it's really hard to use that as kind of a canonical text, so. I mean, others may have a different sense, but I don't see that kind of, you know, I think we're right in it.
4: I just wanted to add uh, that while the term Latin America may have emerged in the 1850s and 60s, by the late 19th century, like I'm thinking of a writer like José Enrique Rodó, who wrote this, Ariel, this slim book that was so important throughout Latin America, he kind of ran with the notion and took it to incredible extremes, right? So he made a distinction between the crass, materialist vitality of the United States versus the spirituality of Latin America, clearly essentializing this notion that had existed before and taking it to extremes. It proved to be very popular in, I mean, he was an Uruguayan uh, writer. It was, ve- it was widely read in Mexico and in Argentina. I don't know how it fared uh, here. It would be a very interesting sort of almost like uh, project to figure out how these term, the genealogy of the term, and how it may have evolved and ram- ramified in different places mm-hmm. in our hemisphere.
3: I was thinking about this term, um, I've been using Latino history, and I think what we do in our classes, at least what I do in in my classes, I say, we want to know about the terms, but I'm more interested in the people coming together and what they call themselves when they come together. And so when, say, Cubans and Puerto Ricans in the 1830s and 1840s say New Orleans, when they meet in a meeting, in a political exile meeting, what do they say? How do they describe themselves? Do we say all of us coming together, we're Puerto Ricans and Cubans together, or do they have another term for it? And I think we want to find those terms and those identities and those identifications. And for now, we call that Latino history. I think that's a provisional term, but I think we as historians do that a lot, right? (laughs) nobody seems to get too upset when we call it European history and we call it pre-modern European history for goodness sake. I mean right? Uh, right. Even though those people don't consider themselves Europeans, I mean they might be Prussians or they might be and this is where my European history falls apart. But they <laughs> are called all kinds of different stuff right uh, So I think in that way I don't th- I think it's a productive conversation. I think it's a useful mm-hmm. conversation, but I also think it's a conversation that we need to see other historians as doing that. That's what we do as authors and I tell my students, you know, there's author and authority, right? And so we have authority over our material. We're historians. We can also place, then, distinctions on groups that don't necessarily see those connections, but we do, right? Um, and so I kind of want to loosen up, at least for myself. It, I can call it Latino history. I can understand they might call it different things, but we still have a certain authority and power to, to name what we see as an experience that they don't necessarily see themselves in.
2: You know, Pablo, one of the things that I worry about is that we tend to box it in, Mm -hmm. Latino history. You can't box it in because it's made up of Mm -hmm. different components. Uh, You can't just teach Latino history as being of the United States because it's not. It's transnational. And that aspect uh, is is something that we sometimes have problems with because we, we know one part of the story but we don't know the other so that you've got to look for the ways in which you can sort of facilitate that acceptance of knowledge or that acquisition of knowledge. Mm -hmm. The the, the story about Rodot is he has a tremendous influence. Ariel has a tremendous influence on the, on Latino thinkers in the United States, Mm -hmm. but it doesn't translate beyond that, you Mm -hmm. know, so. Uh, You have to look at it, I think, from both sides and perhaps going right to the people and then looking at at the ways that they fit, the ways that they identify. Is, is one way to do that. I
3: think one of the ways that kind of, going back to your question, uh, approach it is, I feel like there are some things they just folks, students need to know, right? They need to know about the Mexican-American War. They need to know about Lago They need to know about the Spanish-American War. And so some of it is kind of like, okay, I know they have to know all this stuff. They need to know the discrete histories of these communities and of their kind of migrations and their migrations back and their history. So in some ways, I kind of start with that. And then I want to fill in and say, are there moments where we can bring these groups together? And are there moments around kind of shared identity. And so I talk, um, have moments talking about um, uh, Latinos in the Midwest, since, you know, Oberlin is in the Midwest. And so we talk about then the migration of Mexicans to Chicago, the migration of Puerto Ricans to Chicago, and some of these groups coming together. And so I try to find moments of kind of linkage where we can say, okay, what are these some shared kind of experiences? I think the collection of Latina Legacies collection is really wonderful. I've taught for that for years. because it also talks about individual women. And then we can start to say, okay, how is Luisa Capetillo's experience in the turn of the 20th century? Similar in some ways and different in other ways to the experience of Teresa Uria, who is this uh, Mexican kind of curandera and Hitler who moves back and forth across the US-Mexico border. Very different experiences, but in some ways similar experiences. I mean, we uh, well, I think we sometimes, don't acknowledge, I think we know, but we don't necessarily acknowledge as much, is there's this homogenizing, exoticizing, eroticizing, criminalizing, racializing discourse from the broader United States that's also really bringing folks together. Because, you know, every time, so in Cleveland we had this big thing with the Adiel Castro who held those women um, in bondage for, you know, and, um, and kidnapped them. And I know as soon as I heard that name Castro, I was like, oh man. Right, um, I like did have to, to be, and I'm not Puerto Rican, right? So, I, you know, like, and and I think that's a common experience, right? And you like, and for me, and this is maybe just some of my politics, but like yeah. Ted Cruz, right? I'm like, oh, come uh, on. Yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, fair, you know, like i want to be transparent with my politics, and you know, um, and fair enough. And I think we can see it on the other side. So, I think there is also that part of it too that there's that that is a kind of a common experience that I don't think is only in the turn of the 20th century I think maybe a little bit we might be able to trace it back a little bit
0: you know our students come out of sort of a US history survey background when they leave high school and I think they're very used to having sort of this master narrative about US history and I think one of the things they really love about Latino history is it's super messy right you know you're, you're always teaching about complexity and you're teaching them to really think about Particularities of um, people and the places that they're in, and then I think they can take that kind of intellectual work and apply it back to U.S. history. It turns out U.S. history isn't this sort of compelling narrative. It, it itself is also really sort of messy and um, and complex. So I think there's sort of an interesting underlying um, intellectual work that's going on with with that as well.
5: Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> I just wanted to hear your perspectives on the relationship between the development of Latino history um, and the development or current place of Latino philosophy if you had any
4: thoughts. I, I, just like you, uh, I am very curious about where ideas at certain historical periods come from. And oftentimes we get the wrong impression. Like the example that first comes to mind, to my mind right now, is that when uh, Latin America became independent from Spain, many of the uh, the earliest interpretations about where these ideas were coming from is well, you know, they must be copying the United States uh, that had undergone independence 50 years earlier and had very vocal founding fathers, and there were a set of texts that Latin Americans conceivably looked at. When you actually look at the records you realize that they were looking at Spanish and French intellectuals. So again, this very same messiness that we are talking about uh, exists at the the level of the flow of ideas. And right now, I don't think anyone doubts that the United States surely was an example, and it was referenced uh, in some of the independence movements, but many of the main ideas were actually coming from Europe at that time. Mm -hmm. In the 20th century, I would say then, I'm not a specialist by any, I don't know, I know very little about the 20th century, I have to confess, I mean, I'm mostly a colonialist and 19th century uh, uh, specialist, but my impression is that probably the dominance of the United States becomes far more pronounced and you can see it also in the way in which Elites in Latin America behave with their children, right? So even to the middle of the 20th century, it was still, you know, you would send your children to Europe, to France, to England. Now the United, people want to come to the United States and study in these, uh, in these universities. So there's definitely a shift there. Um, mm-hmm. Although, as I said, I, I don't know much about the 20th century.
2: You know, it's interesting. Of course, we know who some of the philosophers, who the thinkers were. The fascinating thing about looking at Latino history from a transnational point of view is of course the longevity of it. And second, the fact that there is this tremendous European influence. And the, I, see, I can't tell you all of the names, but I can tell you how it was practiced. Everything was philosophical. The, the educated uh, would um, uh, uh, would meet, on a regular basis in salons. To give you an example, Lola Rodriguez Cetillo, the uh, Puerto Rican, uh, uh, great Puerto Rican poet, who, uh, and I say great because of all of the 19th century uh, 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 Latin American women poets, her name is always the first one on the list, who also considered herself an Antillian uh yo soy de las and thought of herself as being of the region, of a broad region. And uh, uh, and and her her the, the habit was that on a Sunday afternoon, uh, we, they didn't have television, they didn't go to the movies, uh, they they would go to theater, but they would go to one another's houses where they would hold these uh, salons. Uh, for the discussion of great of ideas, and the ideas were based on the political currents of the times. they would discuss positivism, which was a driving force uh, in the political systems of some of the Latin American countries. Um, Uh, Brazil, you know, comes to mind. Well, the merits of positivism, the merits of a government as we, a democracy as we have in the United States. You know, what was the importance? How did they, who were the important people that were involved? The poets would write about this. Everything that was written was, was written in, in verse or in prose that was read by everyone. And I can guarantee you that if you put together a list of Latin American leaders and presidents, most of them were philosophers. Sarmiento, for example, who discusses race. And the issue of, uh, of, of, of what do we do about the Indians, you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, how do we incorporate them into, the, in, into our so-called pseudo-European world? Uh, the French philosophers were very, very important to them. So that when, once you begin to, you know, to dig into that, there is even something for philosophers that can be taught in the classroom. Because, uh, because you can begin to compare and contrast. And, and, and I was, you know, kidding around uh, with Andres about Bajrodo, but this was a very, very important piece of work because it characterized the United States as this monster. And Marti calls it, you know, if you're, you're living in the entrails of the monster, uh, the country of the United States, uh, which was all about progress at, 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 at no matter the cost and had no soul. And, and, and the Latin Americans defended themselves on, on, you know, on that terrain by saying, yeah, but we have the soul. Ariel is named after Ariel in The Tempest, who is the thinking person as opposed to the, cycl- the cyclops, the giant. You know? So you begin to find these currents and, 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 and they're there and they can make very, very exciting, exciting classes which I think our students need, so that's a yeah. rafael in, in terms of, a, of, of of a race okay. of race, you you could not have you could not have freedom and equality, uh, without without having equality of the races, and, and he's and the role of education, role right. of education in in bringing in bringing about the you know the that, that trend of thought. But uh, no, it's not the United States, it's France. Uh, is the leading, uh, you know, that's, that's, that, that's who they hold up. That's, that's what they were looking at. Yeah. Um,
0: you know, the role, and because um, they translate onto a sort of ideas and um, of Mexican-Americans and um, things like that. And yeah, during the Mexican-American War, I think a lot of those sort of theorists thinking about, what, what does it mean to incorporate the sort of group of people into? Um, into the nation. Um, back there.
5: Also looking at um, development of science in Latin America. I mean, I I look at science and medicine from an anthropological perspective, so I do my ethnographic work, but I'm always using actually cultural history to make my kind of arguments. And it's really fascinating. There's a collection called Science in Latin America, so you're getting sort of these ideas, and it's not only you know I focus on in Colombia where. We're going to in Paris to get trained. But there's also this, like, back and forth sort of conversation and hospitals being imagined as a kind of laboratory. Um, and so there's certain kind of notions, it's not just, you know, unidirectional or vertical kind of ideas, but. Actually, quite the conversation between Latin America and Europe, right? And cr- constructing some of these ideas around, for example, going from miasma into ideas like Pasteur and germ theory. So there's, and, and I think that's philosophical um, because it did change paradigms or, you know, epistemology, right? The way that people are imagining disease. Um, and it still goes on ethnographically, like looking at military medicine. You know later it's like in the fifties, right, with the United States. I I was doing ethnographic work in a military hospital where you know we constantly have people from Walter Reed, you know, from the US uh, mm-hmm. visiting, and it is seen as kind of an experimental branch. You know, yeah. so even I spoke to you know, <laughs> Latino US physicians in US military hospitals who had spent time in that, right, to learn methods developed in the military hospitals and then bringing them to U.S. Uh, institutions. So I think that in thinking more about the development at least of science, and mm-hmm. that's sort of my medical philosophy, there's, if there's not as much histories written, but there are some things, and also looking at Latin American scholars, um, I think there are people that you know, so I do a lot of the reading in Spanish, but
3: there's some stuff also being published in English. Well, and I think uh, highlighting the the inequalities, the power inequalities there too. When you say like kind of as a laboratory, immediately I start thinking about laboratory for the pill right laboratory for other reproductive technologies um, in a place like Puerto Rico and so on and I was thinking also about neoliberalism right and so the Chicago School of Economics that trains all these Latin Americans who then go back to Latin American countries and lead Latin American countries right and in some cases lead them into disasters right um, and so I think I think it's important to keep the you know to also keep an eye on the, the power inequalities that are moving that are enabled and created and maintained and constituted by this production and kind of of exchange of knowledge that occurs. Um, and philosophy is part of that, right? I think what we're forgetting that philosophy in Latin America has always
6: been literature. And that all the stuff that you guys were talking about was very much pretty of the 1% elite, to use a very political term. And so, yeah, all the rich kids went to France, but they never really exerted the kind of popular power in thought or in action that all the poor kids to the public university exerted after they read that you know that or they read García Marquez or they read any of the local authors. And so I have a bias I'm a writer, but I feel like we are as historians, mm-hmm. the rest of you, forgetting <laughs> how incredibly powerful and rich the literary legacy in Latin America has been for centuries, and that in fact even the illiterate were able to participate in a very you know, transformational political economy because they were read to when they were
4: mm. in their factories, you yeah. know, and it
6: just saddens me that we just like washed over that. Um,
4: well, and the
2: importance of poets, too,
4: especially. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. People,
6: meant, <laughs> I, my grandmother made me memorize, you know, <laughs> the revolutionary poets of my country, I know. but yeah. as soon as I learned to read that, yeah. you know, and and I, my uncles and generations of my family can still recite, yeah. people from all over Latin America, yeah. yeah. because that's how they were We didn't wait to get some boardings.
4: Yeah. Well, uh, no. I, well, let me just say a couple of things. I uh, I went to a boarding school not because my family is rich. I got a full scholarship. My family is very middle class. <laughs> so, and second, I mentioned the uh, the elite sending their children because I had a very specific example in mind, and I think you already touched on this, which is uh, positivism in uh, in Mexico. So this is a French philosopher, Auguste Comte who came up with this idea that societies come through different stages from greater disorder to order. And that was the philosophical foundation of the 34-year dictatorship in Mexico. There, are, there were positivists who had trained with Comte in France. So even though they may have been the 1%, the impact was enormous. For the, for the masses. So, uh, so, that, so I just wanted to say that, uh, that there. Uh, and second of all, I wanted to completely agree, agree with you, and it's almost like a separate subject here, that the, the role of poetry in Latin American literature and Latino literature is tremendous. And I don't know exactly how to explain it or, or why that is the case, but it is very noticeable. So.
2: It's just a lot
7: this something to what has been said recently because i think it's very important and it connects with what virginia was saying and i think that yes there was at that level of history of ideas and philosophy a, a very uh, strong tradition uh of modernism and liberalism and uh, that came from europe but we cannot forget also the more uh the, the, the alternative uh, philosophies that appeared in Mexico with indigenismo, right. uh, trying mm-hmm. to counteract <coughs> precisely those ideas that were imported from Europe and trying to look at it and sometimes also from the outside and from a, from a very uh, uh, middle class perspective, but at yeah. the same time opening space, at least in areas like uh, beyond this, uh, to, re- to question the, 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 the way indigenismo was trying to provide an alternative. But also opening up uh, 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 possibilities for indigenous authors or indigenous thinkers okay. to, to 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 provide this this uh, this vision that was more. Uh, more from, from the reality that was experienced there. So I think that, and on that, we can, you know, we can talk not only about Vasconcelos with the idea of the cosmic race, but mm-hmm. all the other alternatives that we saw, not just in philosophy and in literature, but also in, in the arts mm-hmm. and how how it opens space. In a, mm-hmm. uh, we have a lot, of it, but not everything makes it to the understanding of what Latin American philosophy is or yeah. Latino philosophy yeah. for
4: that matter. Yeah. <coughs> The other example that I could think of along that lines is uh, dependency theory, which indeed was a set of ideas that were created by Latin American uh, scholars that then took I mean, it's one of the examples in which the, the flow of ideas was the reverse. right: No. I wouldn't. <laughs>
0: Actually, I think why do we, we'll start with that when we come back. <laughs> <laughs> and, 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 <laughs>